Good morning, local congregation and non-local congregation. It's good to be participating in this event here this, this morning. Um, so I get it. Uh, you guys are really into giving food, but not so much into giving blood. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm seeing a pattern here. But, uh, you know, I, I will say I'm, we're only 340 short, if you think about it that way, which is really nothing. And um, really, there, I don't know of anything you can do that requires so little if you're qualified for this, so if you're anemic like Mary, you can't donate, you know, but, but uh, sorry, wait, was that private? Oh, sorry. <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, but if you're able to, it costs so little, and yet it, is, it, it accomplishes so much. So just consider that. Uh, we might make that goal yet. Let's see. Um, I'd like to just start by uh, leading us once again in a prayer uh, for the poor folks over in the Ukraine and uh, the travesty and the tragedy that's happening there. So could we, could we, as people of God, we've got a unique authority and the power of prayer to release kingdom influence in any part of the world that we're praying for. So let's cash in on that for the folks uh, in the Ukraine. Abba Father, thank you, Lord, for as we have shared here already this morning, uh, for saving us by your grace, making us your children and, and endowing us with a unique authority to talk to you and to partner with you in releasing a kingdom influence in this world. And right now, Lord, while there's hurting spots all over this planet, no place is aching worse than the Ukraine. And uh, Lord, so we pray for the, the folks of Ukraine, Lord. Move in Putin's heart if there's any opening at all, any, any, any crack in the door for you to breathe an influence in there. We ask you to do that and change his heart and remove the illusion, the deception that is over this man. He, he, he thinks in some twisted way he's doing good, but he's being used by the one who comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. And there's this massive loss of life on both sides of the U- Ukraine, Ukrainian folks and, 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 and the Russians. And so, Lord, we just ask that by any means possible, bring peace. Show these leaders the way that make for peace and end this brutal, brutal war and massive suffering. Be a comforter to those who need comfort, Lord. A sustainer to those who need perseverance. A convictor to those who need conviction. A protector for all those who need protection. We pray in Jesus' name. And now, Lord, let your word come alive here. Infuse it with your authority. Open our eyes, open our ears to hear it, receive it deeply. And let it affect how we live and how we view the world and how we view you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen, amen. Okay, so this morning's message is a little bit odd. Most, <laughs> that wasn't meant to be a joke. <laughs> In other words, it's gonna be totally normal. No, um, I, I'm gonna talk about eschatology. Ooh, there's a word for you. Eschatology, es- eschatological reflections. And uh, eschatology just means that you're dealing with the end times. And I don't talk a lot about the end times here. Um, because most of the talk that goes on about the end times, I think, is quite wacko, frankly. Um, so I will assure you that though this is going to be a message on eschatology, it's not going to be on the sign of the times or trying to read the book of Revelation like it was the newspaper uh, telling us what's going to happen in the last seven years of world history or something like that. I'm not going to get into the pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, pan-mill, mid-mill, windmill, whatever positions you want. Don't have any interest in that. I'm not going to speculate whether Putin's the Antichrist or, or is it Henry Kissinger or whatever. I, I, I have no interest in any of that. Been there, done that. 
Uh, I actually think that reading the Bible that way, trying to decode it and trying to figure out who's the Antichrist in the timeline and when's it going to happen, I I think um, it's a form of divination so far as I can tell. You you might as well be reading tarot cards. You're treating the Bible like it was some kind of tarot card or tea leaf or trying to discern this. And um, I encourage you uh, to stay away from that stuff. Uh, Focus on the really really important stuff like the four blood moons. Those are important, all right? Okay. No, it's, 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 uh, we tend here to emphasize the fact that, that salvation is not just about what happens when you die. You get to go to heaven, wonderful. But it's a reality, right? It's, it, it, Jesus said, this is eternal life, John 17, 3, that people know you and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Okay, so we, we know the Father through the Son. That is eternal life. That is salvation. Our relationship with God is what it means to be saved, to be in the process of being saved, and it means that you're going to be saved. But it has an impact now, amen? It's, it's, it's to transform our life in the present world, and through us, it impacts the world. And so we emphasize that the gospel is for today, not just about something that's going to take place in the future. But having said that, it still is undeniable that eschatology is important in the New Testament. Not in the sense of of, of figuring out all the details of how things are going to unfold in the future, but rather there's an orientation very strong in the New Testament, but you also have it in the Old Testament to some degree, that there's, there, there, will, there will be an ultimate end, and there'll be an ultimate reckoning. It's what's sometimes called the Judgment Day, and that's what I want to talk on here this morning, the Judgment Day, and I don't think I've ever had a message just on the Judgment Day, and I didn't intend to preach on this, it actually feels quite somber. Um, I didn't intend it. It's just the way the, the message sort of unfolded. Uh, but I think it's exactly what I'm supposed to be teaching on here this morning. We're to live with this awareness that there will be a time, an ultimate end, an ultimate future, a point where God will wrap this whole epoch of history up. And in that moment, God's love will be victorious. And all evil will be vanquished. And in that time, that ultimate end, that judgment day, all wrongs will be made right, justice will be administered, all lies will be dispelled, and truth will be made known. And we're to live with an awareness that that is coming. Um, And I should adjust our behavior here accordingly. So I want to read from, as we're we're speeding through the Sermon on the Mount here, we're all the way up to Matthew chapter 6. And I read verse 24 last week, talk, taught on that. If you weren't here, I encourage you to get that message. I want to read that again, but I also want to back up a little bit and read verses 19 through 21. So here's what we read. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. Instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where are your treasures, verse 24 now, where your treasures, that's where your heart will be. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So here's the issue I want to address. We just sang this song, beautiful song, uh, about how it's all God's grace. We're saved by God's grace. But what's interesting is that Jesus here, and in a number of places, and Paul does the same thing, he motivates our behavior by telling us to be thinking about the future, store up treasures in heaven. And when you think of treasures in heaven, don't think treasures up there, think treasures out there in the future. 
Because in the New Testament, the, 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 the final hope isn't about our souls going to heaven the minute we die, although I think our, our consciousness survives death. But the ultimate hope is to, to the end, this resurrection, bringing about a new heaven and a new earth and the righting of all wrongs. And so when you think about the treasure, think about what you're storing up in the future, what you'll inherit in the future. So Jesus and Paul talk about these treasures that we're going to be storing up, these rewards. Don't have your reward now. Make, it, make sure that you're, you're living in a way that your reward will come later. And you will find here in a little bit that they also talk about losses. So how is talk about rewards and losses consistent with this proclamation that we're saved by grace, completely by grace? And we have the righteousness of Christ. Or I could put it like this. A lot of Christians believe that the minute you die, you either just go to heaven or hell. It's that simple. And however they understand hell, and however they understand heaven. But um, if that's the case, and, and, and a lot of Christians believe that, that you're perfected the minute you uh, die. If you're a believer, then you're made you know, totally pure, 100% holy the minute you die. And if that's the case, then what difference does how you live now make? It totally demotivates any kind of you know, really rigorous striving to, to be Christ-like now. If, if you're going to get you know, for free when you die, why, why go through the work of doing it now? How do we put these things together? What I'm going to be sharing here uh, is my way of putting these things together. Uh, if it's new to you, I just ask that you keep an open mind and open heart and, and, and ask the question, is this biblical and does it make sense? And if you find something more biblical that makes more sense, well then by all means believe that instead and tell me about it. But here's my way of making sense out of things. All right. So last week, uh, we, we, we talked about the diabolical pull of greed. Uh, the diabolical pull of mammon, which is greed. Mammon here, Jesus is speaking of it as though it was a demonic entity, whether he intends it literally or not. He speaks of it as though it was this entity that is seducing us in. There's a power to mammon. Mammon means wealth, riches. The more you have of it, the more it tends to have of you. It kind of tends to suck you in. It, 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 it competes with God for our devotion. And so we have all these warnings about, be careful, be on your guard about it. Uh, it, can, it can suck you in without you noticing it. If we're not careful, we'll end up like, well, who's that guy in Lord of the Rings? Galem? Smeagol. What do they call him? Gallum? Gollum. Gollum. My precious, precious. Oh, I mean, he's got this ring. It's just like, oh, Master Smeagol loves my master. Precious. I do a very poor Smeagol imitation. But it, it, it's just this, this devotion, and you can find without you even noticing it. Your, your thoughts and your heart and your emotions are all wrapped up with Winning in the world's game, that's what mammon is. Getting your best life now. That's where all your thoughts are. That's your devotion. But see, it's so deceptive and so subtle that it's possible to be rich and it's possible to be greedy and not know it. In fact, I suspect that the majority of people that are rich and greedy don't know it. Who sits around saying, hey, I'm rich and greedy? Now, you, you don't think of yourself that way. We tend to identify the rich as those people who have got a little more money than me. Those rich people. And so if you think that way, the rich are always, whoever's got more than me, well then when you hear the warnings, and there's a lot of them in the New Testament, the warnings about riches, Jesus says it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, when you hear that, we think, oh, that applies to those people. <laughs> but it doesn't apply to me because I'm just middle class. We've got to be really careful about this because, uh, as I mentioned last week, we've got to remember that by world standards, most of us are very, very rich. 
You may be a person in America that is without food and shelter and clothing and basic needs, and, and we're here to help you if that's you, and this doesn't apply to you if that's you. If you're in a dehumanizing poverty, it doesn't apply to you. But for most of us, we've got luxuries and conveniences and securities and pleasures and gadgets and gimmicks and stuff that ancient kings never dreamed of. I mean, just think about what we have today that didn't have even a couple hundred years ago. What Pharaoh, with all of his wealth, mighty man in Egypt, what he would have given for an air conditioner, holy cow. <laughs> or a lemonade mixer. Or he would have died just for some soft toilet paper. They didn't think of that until the last couple hundred years. I mean, we've got it made. And so, and on top of that, on top of that, you could define greed as, as the... Uh, perpetual discontentment, the perpetually wanting more. You already have what you need, but you want more. And you want it in a context where there are people who have less than they need, but you want more. That's greed. And what's got to really sober us up is we've got to acknowledge that we are brainwashed to be greedy. Every day, the average American sees between six and 10,000 advertisements trying to sell you something. Six to 10,000. And we don't notice most of that. It's just a barrage all day long, wherever you turn. It's like commercials on your GPS now, for crying out loud. As soon as you come to a stop, a commercial pops up. It's ridiculous. We don't notice most of that, but every one of those advertisements plants a, a little seed of discontentment. You need what I've got. You need to buy this. You, your life could be better. Your smile could be brighter. Your eyes could be clearer. Your skin could be smoother. You could be sexier. People could respect you more. If you just had this, you get this. Oh, yeah, your life's going to be made. Now you're, now, now you're going to get the admiration that you want. Uh, you need this. If you're going to be healthy as you can be and as successful and as funny or whatever, constantly telling you there's, there's, there's more than you need. It, it goes back to the serpent in the garden. Hey, Eve, you could do better than you're doing now. Check out that tree. Here comes the first advertisement. Ooh, look at this. You need this. And we're deluged with that all day long, every day. So greed is our normal. They have this theory, oh, I want that, I want this. To live on this treadmill where you're chasing the proverbial cheese, all the, that's our normal. And so we've got to wake, wake up to this. Knowing how subtle, I mean, if Jesus had to warn the peasants in the first century, be careful about all kinds of greed, how much more us, who are in fact already neck, neck deep in it, it's part of the culture, part of the air that we breathe. It's deceptive. By historical standards, we got it better off than Pharaoh. So if ever there's a people who need to hear these warnings, I submit to you folks, it's us. I, I, I've just been feeling this as I've been, the last two weeks, it's like, whoa. Because the fish never notice the water that they're swimming in. The air that we breathe, it, 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 this is just part of our atmosphere, so we don't notice it. It's our normal. But God's calling us. The kingdom's always abnormal. It calls us out of normal into a new normal. We have to wake up to this. It doesn't matter that you're not part of the 1%, the top 1% of the world, the wealthiest 1% of the world. I read yesterday that the top 1% of the world, they own more wealth than the bottom 60%. Now that's crazy, sick, unjust misdistribution of wealth, but if I'm not careful, I can look at that 1%. I can say, oh, those rich, hoarding, greedy people. They should share more. And if I look at it, if I'm not careful, I can start to compare myself with them. And compared to them, I'm poor. Those are the rich people. So they should hear those passages about wealth. I don't need it. They need it. And if my eyes are fixed on them and I'm judging them, 
Well, then, then see, um, I'm not looking at myself. I can easily forget the fact that I, by world standards and by historic standards, I am filthy rich. I'm f- as far above the average person throughout history as they are above me. And so <laughs> rather than looking at them and pointing the passages of them, I need to have a mirror and look into that mirror and say, how does this apply to me? Am I, in fact, living in a way that is free from the stronghold of mammon? If ever there's a people who need to hear this, it's us. And so, Lord, open our eyes and open our ears. So last week, I showed the subtleness of, of how mammon works by, by, by examining this parable that Jesus tells about this wealthy farmer. And he had a bumper year crop. He just had more crop than he could store. And so he built a bigger barn to store the crop. What could be more normal than that? That's just, that's just capitalism at work, right? As I showed last week, the Lord calls this man a fool. And he was a fool because he thought that he actually owned that mammon. He, he thought that he, he could take credit for growing that ground when in fact God owns the, the, the ground and God owns the crop and, and it all belongs to God. And he forgot to ask God what God would have him do with this. And he forgot to include other people as he was thinking about what he should do with all this wealth. And because he forgot those two things, he forgot the most important thing, and that is that he's going to have to give an account someday of how he lived and what he did with that wealth. And so God calls him a fool. Because while you were rich in terms of the world, you had all the wealth of this world here for a moment, you weren't rich towards God. And so he says, you're going to die today, and then what good will all that wealth be? The moment you die, all the riches of the world, all the pleasures that you've had, all the things you've accumulated come to absolutely nothing, and then you come face to face with God. Think about that ahead of time. He was a fool because he didn't think about his future. The future beyond this life. And a lot of Jesus' teachings point in that direction. He didn't, he was rich in this world, but he didn't store up treasure in heaven. And that means he was impoverished towards God. If you're wise, you live with a view to the future. If you're wise, you live with the knowledge that someday we'll all give an account. And we all know that in some sense. If there was no reckoning, if there's no time to have, of, of saying, are there consequences for things we do, then nothing would matter. If anything matters, then it's got to matter at the end. So Jesus and Paul both repeatedly talk about living with a view towards the fact that you'll have to give an account at some point. Paul says this in in Romans 14. Says the Roman Christians, why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each of us will be accountable to God. He's talking to Christians here. And why does my handkerchief keep falling on the floor? I don't know. Probably something to do with gravity, but... Okay, so here, Paul's saying, I want you to know that we're, we're all going to give an account. We all have to face God, and, and we'll be come before the judgment throne of God, and we'll have to give an account there. And so knowing that, that should impact your behavior now. Among other things, it means you shouldn't judge now. I'll have a lot more to say about this in a couple of weeks when we get into Matthew chapter 7. But he's saying, since we all have to answer to the judge don't think that you're, you're, you're capable of being a judge. Don't you be judging one another now because we all answer to one person and one person alone and that's God at the end of the age. But there is an account that, that, that has to be done. You find this throughout Paul's teachings and throughout Jesus' teachings. Live with a view towards the future. Probably one of the strongest teachings Jesus gave on this. It's also one of the strangest, probably the strangest parable that uh, Jesus gave. It's found in Matthew 16. Sometimes it's called the parable of the unjust or the unrighteous manager. Listen to this. It's weird. 
Then Jesus, then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a, man, who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this manager was squandering his property. He was cheating him. So he summoned him, the manager, and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do? Now that my master's taking the position away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do. When I'm dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So here's what I'm going to do. So summoning his master's de debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? And the guy said, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit, sit down quickly and make it 50. And then he asked another, how much do you owe my master? And he, he replied, a hundred containers of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master, when he found this out, I'm sure he was mad that he just got ripped off, but he commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. But I tell you, listen to this, make friends for yourself by means of dishonest wealth. That's that word mammonus again, the word mammon. Same word that Jesus used before. Make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, mammon, so that when it is gone, because it will surely go away, they may welcome you into eternal homes. Okay. I told you it was weird. Let's unpack this. Um, now, when you're interpreting a parable, it's always really important to ask the question, what is the punchline? And know that the punchline really is the only point. It's kind of like a joke. The whole point of a joke is the punchline. Everything else is just a prop to get you to the punchline. Parables function much the same way. So you, you get way off track if you start looking at the props and try to read, you know, is Jesus trying to teach us how to, how to have business practices here? Maybe Jesus is teaching us that, you know, here's the lesson. If you're going to fire someone, don't let them collect on your debts after you fire them. <laughs> you know, no, no. You, if you're going to fire someone, you get the books and you go right there because otherwise they'll cheat you. But that's not the point Jesus is making here. He's making one point. He's not, he's not con, 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 uh, condoning the dishonesty of this manager. He's simply praising one thing, and that is his shrewdness. One thing about this guy he got right, and that's he thought ahead. Since I'm going to be fired, I'm going to be out on the streets, I better make some friends now so they'll welcome me in so that I'm not out on the streets when, I, when my, my, my boss lets me go. That was smart. And that's the whole point of this, this message. Be smart. The children of this age, they're smart when it comes to retirement. They're smart when it comes to, you know, that kind of thing. Well, be like that, but extend it beyond this life. Extend it to the next life. If you think that retiring is, having a little bit of savings for retirement is good, well, what about your eternal retirement? What are you socking away for that? Live in a way that's socking away for, stocking away for your, for, for your eternal retirement. Knowing what's happening in the future should affect how we behave now. So Jesus is saying, look, there's going to come a time where you're going to get fired. Um, a time when, you know, this, this manager, the, the truth about what he'd been doing is going to come to the service. And so knowing that it's all going to come to light, live in a way that you are going to create that best self that you can be to be brought to light. Live in a way where you are making decisions that are moving you in the direction of that self that will be disclosed at the end of the age. Jesus is saying, make friends with who you need to be making friends with when you get fired. And you get fired the minute you die. And everything you, 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 you've, you've accumulated is gone. 
Make friends with the one that you're going to need when everything in this life is taken away from you. And the one that you need to be friends with is, of course, God, who is also your judge, who is also your lover, who is also your savior, who is also your redeemer. Make friends with him. Get acquainted with him. Um, Know the Father's heart and begin to practice the Father's heart so that now your characters will be formed in a way that's going to make you compatible with with, with Abba Father. And instead of letting mammon get its grips on you and and being self-centered in the way that you think about money and the way that you spend money and and all that, rather than having that happen, start to use this mammon, this dishonest mammon, in ways that makes friends with God, in ways that conform to God's will, in ways that reflect the Father's character. Use this this unrighteous stuff it's, it's, it's meaningless if, if, if we just use it on ourselves because when we die, that's gone. But every time we use it in a, a sacrificial way, this applies to money, it applies to our time, it applies to our talents, it applies to everything. Every time we say no to self, deny self, and, 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 and use something for the sake of others, and investing it in others, and using it for what is good, and using it in ways that reflect all the Father's generous and loving character, when you do that, you are investing in eternity. Every, every drop of blood we spill is an investment in eternity because it's forming our character in a certain kind of direction. There's an ancient uh, maxim, an ancient truth that I think is just profound. Uh, it goes back to Heraclitus, in, I, I think he was the earliest, in 500 BC, but you find it in a lot of different forms throughout history. Uh, I'm going to just read you one form. It's found, it's, this is from a 19th century uh, a, a preacher named Tryon Edwards. He says this, This is the ancient maxim. Thoughts lead on to purposes. Purposes go forth in actions. Actions form habits. Habits decide character, and character fixes our destiny. I just think this is how we operate. It starts with a thought. We choose what we think. And when you persist in a certain kind of thought, well, it, 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 it leads to intentions, purposes. You, you get an idea of how you want to act. And then that leads to you acting on it. And if you persist in the action, it becomes a habit. And if you persist in that habit, it starts to become part of your character, and your character is your destiny. We start by making our choices, but our choices end up making us. So we've got to pay good attention to how we're choosing. We start by making our choices, but in the end, our choices have made us. We're in the process of being solidified. Our character's being solidified, and every choice we make moves us in that direction for better or for worse. And this is actually the whole point of this epic time that we're in. It's to form a character that is compatible with Abba Father. Um, the way the, one way the New Testament communicates this is by saying, this period of time that we're in, between, the resu- between Jesus' resurrection and the second coming, this is the time when the bride is to be making herself ready. And in Revelation 19, it says she makes herself ready by adorning herself with righteous deeds. This is how we make ourselves ready. It's how we form our character uh, to make it compatible so that on the marriage supper of the Lamb, the bride is compatible with, 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 with the groom. We have the same kind of character, same, same heart. We're going to have a happy marriage. And see, to the degree that any member of the bride of Christ, or any member of the body of Christ, each one of us, to the degree that this is true of us, that we are compatible with God, well, then we will experience a reward. To the degree that we're not, we will experience a loss. And that's the judgment. Our choices matter. It means that, that every choice we make matters. There's a significance to this. We're going somewhere. There's, the story has a certain kind of ending. Our actions matter. There will be rewards and losses, even for believers. It's not a question of whether you're saved or not. It's a question of what are you doing with your salvation? What are you building on it? 
Paul talks about this in, in a, a passage I want to read here, 1 Corinthians 3. Um, I like this passage a lot because when, when you talk about the judgment throne of God or the judgment throne of Christ, um, that, that's appealing to a court of law metaphor. It's, it, think about the judgment as though it was in a court of law. But it's just a metaphor. Here, Paul is going to speak about the judgment in a much more organic kind of way. And for reasons I can't get into now, I think that the organic language of the Bible is more foundational than the legal language. Because legalities, oh, I can't get into it. But it, 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 it's a more fundamental way of thinking about it. So here's the passage. Um, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, the work of each builder will become visible for the day. And whenever Paul talks about the day, he uses that phrase several times. He's talking about the judgment day, the final end. The day will disclose it because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. If the work is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but only as through fire. Okay, so the foundation is Jesus Christ. The foundation is the whole message, the gospel that's, that's based on Jesus Christ. It's, it's basically that Jesus Christ came into this world and he changed everything for everyone. By God's grace, all obstacles between us and God have been removed. By God's grace, he's got a bear hug around everybody. He's claiming everybody. By God's grace, he, he made a sacrifice that has reconciled us to himself and has vanquished evil. All that has been done. That's the foundation. It's all by grace. We sing about it. Hallelujah. It's wonderful. It's glorious. Spectacular. We never want to compromise that at all. We don't earn heaven. We don't achieve heaven. We don't work our way there. No, it's given to us by grace. But that's the foundation, Paul says. And it's called a foundation for a reason. It's because something is supposed to be built on it. Think about this. What is the purpose of a foundation if not to build a building on it? It'd be pretty weird if some builder came into your neighborhood and built the foundation and then moved in. <laughs> and never built a house. Like, hey, buddy, you're going to build a house? No, no, the foundation's fine. Like, no, the foundation's there to support the house. And see, that's what we build with every decision we make. And the question is, is are we building a house that is compatible with the foundation? The foundation being Jesus Christ offering up his life for us. It's self-sacrificial love. Is, the, is, is what we're building here consistent with the foundation, or is it at odds with the foundation? And Paul here says that there come a time when the quality of what you're building will be found out. It will be, it'll be, it'll, it'll be tried. The grace is given to you, the foundation, your salvation is intact, but what are you building with it? Paul makes this point uh, in, in Ephesians 2 when he says this. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Lock it in, you're saved by grace. And this is not of your own doing, it's a gift of God. Even your faith you couldn't have done on your own were it not for the Holy Spirit working in your heart. Opening your heart, opening your eyes. You're not a Christian because you're so smart. No, the Holy Spirit had to be working in your life. Now, he doesn't force you to believe. You can say no. You can suppress the Holy Spirit. This is an irresistible grace. But we couldn't have believed without the, the gracious working of the Holy Spirit. So we, that, not, that not of ourselves is the gift of God. And then he says, not because of works, lest anyone should boast. We could have nothing to brag about. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're saved by faith, strictly a gift. That's the foundation. But what are we doing with it? The purpose for the foundation 
God, the Holy Spirit works in our heart to get us to believe. We, when we yield to that, we believe. And now we become God's workmanship. He begins to fashion us in a certain way. We're to be trophies of his grace. He's fashioning us by the power of his spirit to, to reflect his character, to look more and more like Jesus Christ, uh, to be his arms and feet here on earth. Where's workmanship? And that has been the plan from the start. This was, he planned this beforehand. The point of the whole thing of having this foundation is to have a building that will put on display the character of God. And that's each of us. But we play a role in that. We can't build that house on our own. We have to always be relying on God's grace and the spirit inside of us. But on the other hand, God won't build the building for us. He wants us to be people, not automatons. And, no, people who have say-so. He wants a bride who's got sass, who's going to sit on the throne with him, who's going to rule with him. And we start by taking authority over our own lives. So he doesn't do it for us. He wants us to be learning how to tap into the power of God and tap into the transformation of the salvation that we have by grace in order to become his workmanship that's being created for good works. How the bride makes herself ready, compatible with the bride. That's the whole point of this period of time that we're in. We cooperate with God to bring about this building. The bride's making herself ready. And because it's our, that's something we do and we have to take responsibility for it, because of that, there are consequences. Because our decisions matter. Life is important. It's a serious thing. There are consequences. So the day will disclose the quality of what we've built up here. It will be tried by fire. The judgment day for Paul is simply a matter of saying what is true. It's, it's the organic process of what happens when, when all truth is revealed, when all lies are dispelled. The way I see it is like this. On that day, I will come into the presence of God and I will have been fired. I have lost everything that life, uh, that I acquired in life. It's the real Greg boy stripped of all pretense. Coming into the presence of the real God. It's that simple. And the real God... If you've been around Will Hills for any length of time, you know that the real God is, is love. God is love. God is cross-like love. I'm coming into the presence of perfect, unwavering, passionate, cross-like love towards me. See, when the kingdom comes in fullness, as it will on that day, everything that exists will be made compatible with the love of Abba Father because the whole creation is supposed to reflect the glory of God, uh, the, the love and joy and peace of the of, of, of Father, Son, and Spirit. Everything will be compatible with the character of God, which means that everything that's not compatible has got to be done away with. And so what Paul is saying here, I believe, is that when you come into the presence of God's love, it is, it is like a fire. It is a fire that will purify whatever can be purified. To whatever degree my building has been made of, of gold and precious stones and silver, well, it survives the fire. It gets purified by the fire, perfected by the fire. But every part of my building that I've built on the foundation of Jesus Christ that is made of wood, hay, or stubble, it was just me. It was just, I got my reward now. To that degree, it's incompatible with the character of God, and so it is like dross that's just burned up. I'm freed from that. This is very different. Some of you, when you hear the fire of God, you may be immediately go to hell. Like you're, you're thinking, oh, he's talking about hell. Because some of you have been taught that God's going to burn people alive throughout all eternity, which is about as savage of a picture of God as I can imagine, just roasting people for the fun of it throughout eternity. Um, this is not that. This fire here, now, it, it, it communicates pain, but... It's love. It's all done out of love. It's, it, it's, it's done for, God's motive here is to 
perfect us and to purify us and, uh, and, and to free us to be compatible in the kingdom of God. Um, and, and so we suffer, we experience reward to the degree that our house is wood, hay, or it, it, it's, it's precious stones and silver and gold and it's purified, but we will suffer loss to the degree that it's not. To the degree that we lived our life in a self-centered way, inconsistent with the character of God, spending money only on ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. To the degree that we formed a character that is not in line with who we truly are in Christ, to that degree we suffer loss. And Paul even says, there may be some who have everything burned up, Everything burned up. Now, they're still saved. The builder escaped, but only as through fire. And that's an expression that means kind of like by the skin of your teeth. You got out of the house alive, but that's all you can say. Everything else was burned up. You wasted your life. You, 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 you didn't invest it. You were poor towards God. Uh, you didn't have a treasure in heaven because you didn't develop the kind of character that was compatible with, 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 with Abba Father. And see, the New Testament is just emphatic on this, that the quality of what we're doing will, will be tried. It will be made known. And the whole thrust of the New Testament is to say it's, it's a matter of urgency that we, try, that we bring our life in, in line with Abba Father's character now rather than wait for it to be refined by the fire. Uh, it will be harder later on. Do it now because it's only going to be harder later on. And this is also something, we don't notice it very much, but it, 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 you find this in teach, Jesus' teachings quite a bit. For example, in Matthew 5, he says, uh, you know, if you have a disagreement with somebody, make, make peace with them while you're on the way, lest you be thrown into prison, and you won't get out till you pay the last penny. You will get out, but, you'll, but it's going to be a lot harder later on. This is a time where we're to be bringing our character in line with, with the character of Abba Father. And every choice we make moves us in a certain direction. Uh, it starts with a thought, becomes an intention, becomes an action, becomes a habit, becomes character, becomes our destiny, becomes our reward, or becomes our loss. What are we doing with the life that we have? You know, this was actually, this passage, 1 Corinthians 3, uh, it was in the early church, this is why folks be, began to teach that, that uh, after death, there's a purging time. We will go through a purging. That's what Paul's talking about. And that in time became known as purgatory. And initially, it was, for, it was, a, it was a purging place. In time, it got, that idea got corrupted, and people began to think that we're paying for our own sins, as though Jesus didn't do enough on the cross. And, the, and Luther and Calvin and other Protestants were correct in pointing out that that's not a, a biblical doctrine. But the reformers, Calvin and Luther and others, they, got, they threw the whole thing out. The whole idea of there being any kind of afterlife purging or correcting or growing, they threw that whole thing out. And a lot of us today are saying maybe they threw the baby out with the bathwater. Because the idea that there's a purging we go through prior to entering the kingdom, because the Bible says nothing unclean can enter the kingdom. Everything that's going to be in the kingdom will be compatible with the character of God. It's got to be changed. And whatever's not changed in this life, well, before we enter the kingdom, it's got to be changed. Um, and, and, and so it's a, I wouldn't call it purgatory because that word's not associated with paying for your own sins, but it is a, a, some kind of a purging. I've got to think of a new word for it, a purging. And the thrust of the New Testament is to say, better to do it now, store up treasures for yourself in heaven rather than have it be done later. You don't want to be entering into that realm in an impoverished state, having a character that's out of line with Abba Father. Now there's a lot of questions here um, that aren't answered. And, and, and if I had time, I'd, I'd speculate on them. But, I mean, what does this process look like? We're not really told. Um, how does God's the fire of God's love refine us? How, how's that going to work? Um, 
how long is this process going to take? Uh, are the results permanent? Like if, if you find out that your, your house was all wood and hay and stubble and it got burned to the ground, fire of God because it wasn't compatible, do you ever get a chance to rebuild it? Do you get a do-over? Can you get to build it again? You know, it, those are interesting questions, but they don't affect the main point. And the main point is this. Um, we've been saved by grace. Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. All by God's grace, unmerited favor. But we need to take care what house we're building on that foundation. We have to be on our guard against all kind of mammon because it is so deceptive and it competes for our devotion. And we can succumb to it without even noticing it. Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Because we can't be building a house that's going to reflect the character of God and be chasing after mammon. You can't serve two masters. The foundation is given to us by grace, but what are we building with every choice that we, that, that we make? Is there cho- choices Choices that are giving us a reward now only? Or are we making choices that are investing in our eternal retirement, if I can put it like that, by moving our life in the direction of Jesus Christ? Live in the question. I mean, it it just comes down to this. With every choice you make, ask the question, what kind of person makes that choice? And is that the person you want to be? Think about it. Because the choice will move you in that direction. And this is a question that I don't think we in the West ever ask ourselves. Up until 200 years ago, it was the main question human beings asked themselves. How can I be the best? They understood that the purpose of life, even pagans understood this, Aristotle understood this. The purpose of life is to become a virtuous person, to be as good a person as you can be. And really, if you think about it, that's self-evident. We all have a moral obligation to be the best people we could be. If you believe there's any kind of objective good, well, then you have to believe that's good to be good. And so the whole point of being, the whole point of now is to be good, to be the best we can be. We know that. But we just don't practice it very much. We're not intentional with it. Ancient folks used to think about that all the time. Today, we don't think about that at all. We can think about how, how successful can we be? How can I get happier? How can I get wealthier? How can I get, 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 get? But we don't ask, usually, how can I be the best version of myself I can be? The version that I would be happy to have exposed on the judgment day. What kind of building am I building with every choice that I make? Think on that. Pray on that. Abba, Father, thank you for calling us into this dance, into this, thank you for the grace that has saved us, that has rescued us. Thank you for the grace that is now working in our hearts to build on that foundation a life that reflects your character, your heart, your desires, your goals, your aspirations, and your ambitions. Help us, Lord, to be focused on that. Remind us throughout the day, with every decision we make, to be considering it, to be deliberate about it. Help us not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, the pattern of mammon, the pattern of chasing after stuff. But Lord, free us to be a people who while we take care of needs in the present, like we all must do, our heart, our treasure is stored up in heaven. And our aspiration is to grow in that direction, to become increasingly like you and how we love and how we serve other people. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said one last time. Amen. Amen. Okay, so if you're... Uh, Oh, don't forget, we've got uh, prayer available. If you have anything you could use a prayer in, uh, if you're in-house here, you can come up to the front of the auditorium and get prayer. If you're online, you can get online and get prayer. encourage you to take advantage of that. Um, uh, we have the Musecast on Tuesdays where you go deeper into this message. I encourage you to check out that if you can. And we also have gathering groups that so you can get in and talk about the message, go a little deeper with it. encourage you to do that. And if you're going to be in, in-house next week, if you're going to be part of the local congregation, let us know ahead of time if you have kids so that we have enough folks in the children's church to take care of all of our kiddos. God bless you guys. Go out and love on the world.